The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Institute, Addictions, Grace for the Journey. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have spoken to us and that we in your image speak. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow in grace and sanctification, to have changed hearts, and that we may glorify you with our words. Thank you for all the scriptures say about these things and give us wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be talking about our speech and our words. And a lot of this really relates to the topic of the pre-conference seminar on abuse, that people with their words destroy each other. You know, we were kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie, right? Amen. And probably without a lot of effort, many of us could think of things we've heard that still wound us today, sometimes decades after they were spoken. And I don't want to spend too much time even dwelling on that. Uh, we're going to approach this from a couple of different angles. One is the Bible gives wisdom about speech, which should re- then that wisdom should regulate our behavior. And that's in the book of Proverbs, especially. It's elsewhere in Scripture, but in the book of Proverbs, out of 915 verses, about 150 of them are references to our speech. And a lot of those verses I've written out in your notes. Some of them I'll be quoting on the fly. Uh, But I also want to go beyond just the external words we speak to the issues broadly and theologically that our speech is in God's image, which has been corrupted and needs to be redeemed, and, and the transformation of heart that is necessary for our words to honor God. A book that I commend to you is a book called War of Words by Paul Tripp. And I think the audio is from that maybe on the IBCD website. One thing I appreciate about how Paul approaches words as he does so theologically, we take words for granted. We take speech for granted. But in the Bible, there's a theology of our words. The Bible begins with God speaking, right, in Genesis 1. And, and over and over again in Genesis 1, it's, and then in Genesis 2, and God said. And God's words are powerful as he calls things into being. Then you get to the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And so Jesus is the Word. He communicates God perfectly to us. And as we think of the scriptures, God reveals himself to us in language. In, in Hebrews chapter 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets and in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. So God reveals himself to us in language. And, and we as biblical counselors are so thrilled to have the word of God. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So we have from God a perfect book, which he has spoken forth through human instrumentation to us. And, and God's speech is beautiful. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enduring, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. You know, all these things, more desirable than gold, sweeter than honey. So God himself speaks, and then we, because we are in his image, we speak, which makes us different. I mean, you can, you can say to Rover, speak, and go, right? But he's not really speaking like God speaks. You can teach a parrot to make words, but the parrot can't speak like we speak. Our capacity to form thoughts and to express them and, you know, all the physiological mechanisms of vocal cords and eardrums, but all of the, the, the speech of expressing yourself, we are in the image of God doing something just amazing, to be in his image. But because of the fall, our speech has been corrupted. And you go to Genesis 3 and another voice, what's the second voice that speaks? It's the serpent. And she calls God's words into question. The serpent lies. And now our speech is more like his speech. Uh, Our children are born 
sinners. And as soon as they can speak, they lie. As soon as they can speak, they say harsh and cruel things and assert their will. And one thing I thought Tripp just did a great job with is that every time, even for us as believers, every time you open your mouth, you're either imaging God's speech or the liar, the serpent's speech, which is deceitful and murderous. And when James says, be slow to speak, that's something worth thinking about before you open your mouth. Every sentence you utter is either representing God or the devil. One thing I'll just mention as well about God's words that are so amazing is I taught a preaching class at the seminary a couple of weeks ago. And one of the assignments I give them is to form in one sentence, one clear sentence, the the entire purpose of their passage that they're going to preach from. We spent days trying to form one good sentence. You know how hard it is to write one good sentence that's true biblically? And yet there are thousands of words, tens of thousands of words in the Bible, every one of them perfect. And and for us just to write one good sentence, I just finished this book. It's got 80,000 words in it. I could change 10,000 things probably, and, and it could always be improved. God's Word is already perfect in every way, which is just wonderful. But our words, and again, words are powerful. Uh, Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. James talks about how the tongue being this little part of the body, like the rudder of a ship, but it can be like a fire setting others aflame. And the, the tongue can be persuasive. The heart of a, the wise teaches his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips, Proverbs 16.23. Words are very powerful in our culture, how you use them. Are you pro-life or pro-choice? Do you oppose marriage equality? That's playing games with words, isn't it? Uh, people use words deceitfully. Is it a baby or is it a fetus? Are you killing it or are you terminating a pregnancy? In some of the most powerful figures, you, you see the newsreels of Hitler giving speeches in Germany leading up to World War II. And I can't understand what he's saying, but you get a sense this guy had a way with words. He was able to persuade an entire, what we thought was a civilized nation, to do barbaric things. Uh, so words can build up. Proverbs eleven eleven: by the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is torn down. Words are also limited. This is in counseling. There are some people who are really good counselees and really poor husbands or wives or children where they come and they say all the right things when you're meeting with them, and then they don't do anything you said. Jesus tells a parable like that, doesn't he, in Matthew 21, where you you tell the one son to go, he doesn't go. You tell the other, oh, I'm going to go, and then he doesn't go. The proverb says, in all labor there is profit, but mere talk only leads to poverty. Uh, Talk doesn't solve every problem. And actually, that often happens in marriages where the person who is really good at talking about six years in, uh, they're not believed anymore. (laughs) And action has to come. Words alone cannot change a heart. Uh, Proverbs 29, 19, a slave will not be instructed by words alone. Though he understands, there will be no response. Um, And there's also in the Bible speaking that's nonverbal. The Proverbs talk about winking and signaling with the feet. But the problem with our words is not a hardware problem. It is a software problem. (laughs) Jesus says it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. And and he addresses this in Luke chapter 6, which we'll get back to a a couple of times. Luke 6, 43, there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. So when you lose your temper and then you try to say, I didn't mean that. No, you spoke exactly what you meant in your heart at that time. Maybe you're sorry you said it. Maybe you don't feel that way now. But what comes out of our mouth is a reflection of what is inside of us. Uh, today, Chris talked, you know, mentioned James 4 a couple times. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? By the way, how do we quarrel in conflict? We, with our words. What is the source? It's the desires that wage war in your members. We 
with our words express what we desire, what we value, what we idolize. And then in the Bible, your words are a tremendous indication of whether you are wise or whether you are foolish. It reveals your heart. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. The mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom. I'm not going to every time I do these Proverbs tell you which one. They're all in your notes. And I'm not going to rattle through that way. Proverbs 4.23, For watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows flow the springs of life. And then for us even as believers, uh, in Galatians 5, you have the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And those are really expressed by our words. Outbursts of anger, envy, strife, versus love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Uh, so that battle's going on, and what's coming out of you is really an ex- Am I walking in the Spirit? Well, what, if, what are the last ten, inses, ten sentences you spoke? It would probably be a good indicator, or typed uh, on an email or a Facebook post. Jesus says in Matthew 12, Every careless word that men speak, they will render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So our words are very important. It's not just the things we do physically. Uh, so most speech is devilish in the sense that most speech is asserting our will rather than submission to God's will. And words can destroy. I mean, we talk about one of our rights as American citizens is freedom of speech. But not all speech is good speech. There is wicked speech that may be allowed speech. And there are many, many categories of destructive speech. And I will mention social media has actually made it worse in many ways. Uh, it used to be email, social media in some ways are even worse because you're by yourself. You're not looking at people in the eye. And you get mad at this politician or this company or this person and you type out what you say and all of a sudden the whole world can see it and you can't reel it back in. Uh, Emails would work the same way as somebody messed you around and quite frankly we don't like face-to-face confrontation. The Bible tells us how to do that properly in terms of lovingly correcting Galatians 6.1 but you, boy, you tell them exactly what you think. Boom, you press send. What have I done? Oh no. And this, this sin spews out of our hearts so we have to be very, very careful. And I'll just, these are categories of which you're aware, but all of it, James 1.19, be slow to speak, really applies on social media. And then where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable also. So flattery, a man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. Uh, People flatter to convince others to do for them what they want. In Proverbs 7, the adulteress, with her flirtations, she seduces him. And I've actually, in cases of adultery, flattery has often been, especially for women, what has led them into adultery, not sexual desire. But here's a man who thinks I'm beautiful and smart and wonderful, and my husband is never happy with me. And it's the flattery that leads them to do things they don't want to do. A salesman sometimes can, oh, yes, that you look great in that car. What a wonderful choice you've just made, um, buttering people up. So you, you're just, you can be ruined by listening to flatterers. And related to that is lies. And actually, it's interesting, on our way here in the Dallas airport, uh, there was a National Geographic, I don't know what National Geographic, National Geographic can do all kinds of weird things. They did a whole issue on transgender. I don't see how that relates to geography. But then <laughs> the way they did it is they tried to show transgender people on every continent or something. But then their most recent edition is why we lie, the science behind our deceptive ways. Here's a secular magazine purporting to be science. Again, I have no idea what it has to do with geography, lying. But they tried to analyze through neuroscience and evolution. And one psychologist is quoted saying, lying is part of the developmental process like learning to walk and talk. They have no clue. This is, this is a real flashpoint in terms of how we as biblical counselors see things and how secular psychologists see things, right? Why do people lie? Because of Genesis 3, right? The liar 
persuaded Eve to believe the lie, and now our nature is corrupted. Lying is not a natural part of evolutionary progress. It's not a natural part of development of a child. Lying is not some neuroscientific problem going on in your brain that you can develop some new pill for. Lying is sin, where you're following Satan's ways rather than God's ways. But as often the case with psychology, their diagnosis of a problem is very poor. Their cures are awful. Their analysis is often pretty good. They're good at observation, but not solutions. And in the article, I said, well, why do people lie? And they said, well, and they had statistics. I don't know. They did surveys or something. And scientifically, they claimed that 36% of lies are to protect yourself, to cover up the bad thing you did. You stole, you snuck around, you whatever. And then 44% are to promote yourself, to make yourself look better than you are, to get them to buy something from you, do something for you. And then 11% is to impact others, which is like get them to like you or something of that nature. Uh, Those statistics are probably accurate. But the Bible says lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. It says a lying tongue hates those it crushes. Ephesians 4.25, speaking of us in the church, says don't lie to one another because we are members of one another. And that's a, a vivid picture that in the body of Christ, we're part of each other. And if you can't trust part of your body, if your leg is unreliable, life will be bad. If your eyes are unreliable, uh, and even more so in marriage where the two are one. And if you can't trust the person with whom you're one flesh, uh, it's going to destroy relationships. Uh, There's perjury. Actually, when I was on a jury many years ago in a fairly lengthy trial, one thing I walked out of there saying is people are really good at lying. I mean, wow, somebody was lying. I'm not sure who was lying, but they're good at it among these attorneys and these witnesses and defendant and all this. Um, So we as believers... uh, Part of transformation that takes place is we become tellers of truth. Sometimes with the counselee, if you're a believer and you've been accustomed to lying, I say it's like learning a new language. Mm-hmm. It's like if I said, for the rest of your life, you cannot speak English anymore because English is bad. For the rest of your life, you have to speak Mandarin. You have to learn a new language and only speak in that language. And if you start to speak in English, you've got to stop yourself. That's the way it is for someone who is accustomed to lying. Some people, their whole life, they've just said whatever would convenience them that they thought they could get by with. And that's been their native tongue from an early age. Mm-hmm. And this gets to the hard thing is that when someone is converted, that's what Ephesians 4.25, the context is you're putting off and you're put, you put off the lies. Because God's, because you've changed sides. You've been transformed out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And now your language is not lies. Your language is truth. Because you're living in a new land. We have gossip and slander. And I need to be careful. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. On our travels, without mentioning anybody or I would be gossiping and slandering, I've been surprised <laughs> how much gossip and slandering I've heard. <laughs> being around different people in different settings away from our new home in North Carolina. And just and there's a verse in Proverbs that really describes our nature. It says in 18.8, the words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. They go down into the innermost parts of the body. There's something about our nature that's perverse, that we like gossip. We like to learn the new thing. We like to be able to be the one who's in the know who can tell others. And we like to know what others don't know. And we like to know the bad things about people. That's why if you bring up a news site, sometimes half of it is celebrity gossip and gossip about these people or those people and the scandals. But this can be a problem in churches. It's a problem in families where you say things about someone you would never say to someone. What does the Bible say you're supposed to do? Galatians 6, if someone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, go to him gently, looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Bear one of his burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Or Matthew 18, if he sinned, go to him. So, but our old nature and the devilish nature is we, we tear others down. Again, the teeter-totter thing, if I make them look bad, it makes me look good. So I tell you how bad this person is and that person is. Uh, I spread innuendo. And somehow I think that's going to either make me like I'm in the know or make me uh, look better than they are. Gossip even can be passing on things that are true but not fitting to repeat. 
just because it's true doesn't mean you should say it. He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. I like the picture of Noah's sons, the more godly sons, when Noah had done something shameful, rather than gossiping about him and slandering him, even though he was really guilty of something shameful. What did they do? They turned their heads and backed up and they covered up his guilt. They, that's what families should do. That's what churches should do. I'm not saying cover up evil that needs to be dealt with biblically, but not to expose the embarrassment for the sake of the dainty morsels of gossip. Romans 14, 23, what does that say? What a good job. Whatever is not in faith is sin. That's a good question to ask yourself when you're about to tell somebody you're not sure they should know. If I cannot say this in faith, I will keep my mouth shut. I will not be sinning to keep my mouth shut, most likely. But if I'm not sure if I should say, I'm not sure I should tell you this. Then don't tell. Simple enough. Uh, angry speech. Ecclesiastes 7.9. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. This, we've already mentioned James 4. Why do people get angry? Well, the source of quarrels and conflicts is you want something and you don't get it, so you kill. And you have, you know, there's a lot in Proverbs about this. Uh, a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. Proverbs 12.18. There's one who speaks rashly like thrusts of the sword. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly. Uh, in counseling, I have been so grieved. That's one of the responsibilities of a counselor. Sometimes you have people verbally killing each other, and because you're in charge, you need to tell them to be quiet. You can't keep doing this in my room, in my office. You're not, you're not attacking the problem. You're attacking the person for the sake of, of vengeance. You're not trying to expose their sin to help them. You're trying to win the fight. You want, it's like they're boxing and I'm supposed to be the, the referee and whoever lands the most low blows wins. That's wrong. If, you, if you're going to bring up somebody else's sin, you get the log out of your own eye and then you go to try to heal and restore them, not destroy them. Um, hateful words can escalate into violent acts. We talked a lot about that today in the pre-conference, that the same heart that says, I hate you, is the heart that may put a fist through the drywall and which may at some point put a fist to a spouse or a child. That's why Jesus says to be angry in your heart, Matthew 5, 21, is murderous. Oh, but my anger is righteous anger. And I love um, Robert Jones in his book on anger talks about this as well. He gets criteria for righteous anger. Righteous anger is only righteous if somebody has sinned against God. And if your passion, it's not for yourself, that, but it's your passion is for God. So the fact that somebody cut me off in traffic, well, it might be a sin to uh, drive badly. And I have to admit, things have deteriorated here in the last year as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> But my temptation is to be, well, you inconvenienced me or you threatened me, so honk or road rage or whatever happens. But that's not a passion for the glory of God. Then you say, well, what if I'm upset about people killing unborn babies? Well, yeah, okay. That's a sin against God. And you can say, I'm really concerned because that's the image of God and it's precious. Okay, but then it has to be righteously expressed. So to say, okay, I'm going to blow up an abortion clinic because they're killing babies in there, that's an unrighteous expression of anger. If you say, I'm going to pray for them, I'm going to stand outside and hold a sign and I'm going to pray and there may be things you can do to express your anger in a godly way. So righteous anger, righteous anger is pretty rare, isn't it? But I've heard it said today, you know, all anger, the more angry you are, the more righteous you feel. But it's a self-righteousness. It's not a godly word. So how careful we need to be. Verbal anger is usually our judging function saying, you've wronged me and I'm going to give you a piece of my mind verbally that's what you deserve. And it's ungodly. Again, it's, it's playing God and it's being on the other side. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, James says. And then quarreling. Um, an arrogant man stirs up strife. Through presumption comes nothing but strife. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. There are some people who are just quarrelsome. You know anybody like that? 
I mean, the proverb says there are some women, it'd be better to live on the corner of the roof than live with a quarrelsome wife. But there are men just as quarrelsome as that. There are people who go to conferences and they see you've got a new book on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And they're going to try to find the one chapter in that book they can argue with you about, ignore the 39 they like. That's the way some people are. Some people in counseling, they're going to talk about, you know, the, the, the couple will get into things. And there's some, it was yesterday. No, it was two days ago. It was 3 a.m. No, it's 4 a.m. And they can't let go of it. We should hate being quarrelsome. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to a fire, so as a contentious man to stir, to kindle strife. And there's a picture in Proverbs. Stop putting wood on the fire and it'll go out. So... Don't be quarrelsome. The, the churches are warned as well against quarrelsome people. And sometimes they need to be put out of the churches. And then other things, uh, filthy speech, perverse speech. Um, Ephesians 5 is one place you can go. But immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There should be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. And you know when you're getting old is when you see something, you think, in my day, that would have never happened, okay? <laughs> and actually, we were at Disneyland a couple days ago. friend let me in Disneyland. So that's in Disneyland. And I see this young mom pushing a stroller with a baby in it. And I hear her unleash profanity that in my day would have gotten you kicked off the football team, <laughs> okay? And then she kind of walked up and asked for directions like she was the sweetest little thing. And just, I, I can't get this. It's just become part of common culture. We've been delivered out of the world. Actually, what part of my testimony is when God saved me when I was a teenager, my language changed. I didn't even think about it. Now, pride, other things didn't change. But that one changed right away, for which I'm thankful to God. Um, that the perverse speech we can, we can be guilty of and it's just just so it permeates our culture now and I don't think we're doing any good to go correcting everybody on earth when they use the bad language but we shouldn't be taking it lightly to be around it I've seen people when they get older and they get dementia and bad language starts coming out how did that happen well it was in the heart it went in and and again, being honest, right? We often think those thoughts without saying those words. Because again, it's a, a heart problem, not a mouth problem. Some of us restrain ourselves. Oh, I'm in a room full of Christians. I can't say what I really think right now. Someday you may not have a choice. It may just come out anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Boasting. Do not boast about tomorrow. You know not what a day will bring forth. Let another praise you, not your own mouth. Uh, nagging, grumbling. God really hates grumbling. In 1 Corinthians 10, he talks about all the sins of the Israelites in the desert. One was their grumbling. They grumbled about food. They grumbled about all kinds of different things. Again, we're supposed to be changed in Christ. Uh, even untimely speech, like one who takes off a garment on a cold day or vinegar on soda is one who sings songs to a troubled heart. There's just times the opposite as like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in the right circumstances. There's times not to joke around. There's times to be serious, to be sensitive to others. Uh, do you see a man hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. It's the stream of consciousness that so many people engage in. There's just unguarded speech, different statistics. The average person in a day speaks approximately 16,000 words. His little mini books um, out there in the sales area. This one has 10,000 words in it. So every day you speak one and a half, a little more than one and a half of these if you're typical. Some of you may speak quite a few more than that. Uh, <laughs> your, ask your spouse if you're not sure which category you fit into. Um, the more you, were there many words? Transgression is unavoidable. He who restrains his lips is wise. Um, the Bible also says to stay away from people whose speech is ungodly. An evildoer listens to wicked lips. A liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. Uh, sin is contagious. When my wife had a cold, I avoided kissing her a little bit. I did get the cold anyway, but uh, 
But the Bible says that to be around an angry person, that his anger, that his words, their bad words are contagious to you. You'll learn his ways. Um, and so we it says, do not associate the man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man. Uh, drive out the scoffer. Contention will go out. Even strife and dishonor will cease. And again, if you're single or if you have people under your influence who are single, don't marry someone who is quarrelsome and angry and foolish of speech. Uh, I was supervising a case recently and they're describing how the male fiance has this big anger problem and is venting and I'm thinking, stop the wedding until you resolve this or go find another one if necessary. If it's happening now during the engagement period, this is back to the abuse topic from today, uh, you're in trouble. And, and God will judge. The perverted tongue will be cut out. A fool's lips bring strife and his mouth calls for blows. A, a fool's mouth is his ruin. Any of you ever feel that way? I can't believe I said what I just said. Sometimes we say. A man of great anger will bear the penalty. An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips. So there's the negative side that when we fell, slander, lies, angry speech, being quarrelsome, that was our native language, the whole bit. But the Bible also teaches us we can now speak with excellence to have self-control. The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. He who guards his mouth and tongue guards his soul from troubles. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. And again, that goes against kind of the daytime TV model of you just blurt out whatever's on your mind. And that's like popular culture. Just get it out. Say whatever's in your heart. That's not a good idea. Often. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only what is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. That is a biblical filter. Just like you filter bad air, you filter bad words. And if it's not going to build others up, if it's unwholesome and it's repent of what's in your heart, and by all means, don't spew it out for other people to be contaminated by it. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. That's back to be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. Um, part of that is don't open your mouth if you don't know what you're talking about. One form of lying is to act like you're sure when you're not. Uh, by the way, this can be a good technique with married couples when you're discussing a matter and uh, it was this way, no, it was this way, it was this way, it was this way. Have you ever been wrong? <laughs> yes. Have you been wrong when you're really sure you were right? Probably. Can you admit that really on, early on in the discussion? As far as I can remember is this, I could be wrong because I'm both fallible and biased. I, I could be wrong and mistaken. I could just remember it the way I want to remember because it, it makes me look good and you look bad, whatever it may be. So just to admit, but to say you're sure, uh, and this is the thing also for preachers when you're giving examples, illustrations, stories, that um, if, you, if you say something's true, and that could even be a historical fact, do your homework or don't say so. Um, be very careful. Then don't talk too much. He who restrains his lips is wise. Even a fool, this is my wife's, she's, she jokingly says this is her life verse. Uh, Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool when he keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is counted prudent. Um, one way my wife seeks to serve me is I, because I talk a lot in public, I talk a lot in counseling. Sometimes at the dinner table when we have guests, I stay in that mode. And you will see my dear wife, and she might just put her hand on my, like, <laughs> zip it. Is, that's her being a help to me. And I've actually given her not just permission, but I've, if you see me over-talking, then some signal, and some might be footsies under the table or something, that's not flirtation, that's admonishment. <laughs> Um, but are you dominating conversations all the time? Are you interrupting people? He who listens before he hears it is a falling to shame to him. Proverbs, I think, eighteen thirteen. Uh, not losing your temper. A fool always loses temper. We've already really talked about that. A fool's vexation is known at once. When something really bugs you, is it just written all over your face or your words? 
That is not wise. Are you glad that God is slow to anger? Do you want to be like him? <laughs> that would be beneficial. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules a spirit than he who captures a city. On the other hand, uh, Proverbs, I think it's 25, 28 says that a man who lacks self-control is what? Like a, a city with the walls broken down. And that's like Jericho thing where, you know, you're, you're totally vulnerable to all kinds of bad things happen to you. Uh, and the cure is grace. Uh, psychologists would say, well, count to 10 or internalize or vent or whatever. The Bible says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Let all bitterness and wrath and strife and anger and envy be put away from you. It's totally different. Um, you can be a person who avoids unnecessary arguments. The beginning of strife is letting of water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. That's also a picture from the ancient world, I think, is that you've got the, like this earthen dam. What happens if you have a lot of water behind an earthen dam and you just make one cut in that earthen dam? What's going to happen? You're going to have a trickle of water all day? No, the water keeps coming. It's going to push more and more earth away and, it, and all the water is going to escape and it's, it's going to flood and make a new channel. That's what quarrels do. Have you seen that happen? Sometimes people can't even remember why they don't like each other anymore. They're family members who have disputes. They don't even know why they don't want to talk to each other. They just know something happened. And now, decades later, they still don't want to be in the same room with each other. When you're secure in the Lord, you don't have to, be, you don't have to win the argument. You don't have to get in the last word. Another verse I love, 27, 6, 26, 17, like one who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. Isn't that vivid? Mm-hmm. And again, it's, it's not Lassie or something you're taking by the ears. It's just a pit bull that's running wild. That's what the picture is. A mangy, wild dog out dangerous. Let's grab him by the ears and see what happens. But getting involved in quarrels that aren't yours is the same. Foolishness. Not to mention that Proverbs says a lot about arguing with fools isn't very productive anyway. Then don't be one who repeats gossip and slander. He who is trustworthy conceals a matter. He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. And then positively, to speak with integrity, not just the put off, but the put on. Truthful lips will be established forever. A truthful witness saves lives. Uh, Psalm 15 is a psalm describing the righteous man. And verse 1, O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness, who speaks truth in his heart, he does not slander with his tongue, nor do evil to his neighbor. He does not take up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. By the way, who is the only person who meets the qualifications of Psalm 15 to be able to walk up the holy hill of the Lord? Jesus is the only one who meets that. But we should be following him up that hill as we've been remade in his image. Uh, it talks about not slain. The one I would focus on is the one who swears to his own hurt and keeps it. A believer is a person, when you make a commitment and then you get offered a better deal, you don't say, well, I've been offered a better deal. I'm not going to keep my commitment. So if you promise to install the toilet for $350 and you find out there was more labor involved than you thought, but you made a promise, then you may take a loss on that job. Or if you promised your kid you would go to his event and then somebody offers you tickets to the PGA golf tournament, you beg your son to release you from your commitment <laughs> and say you'll take him to Disneyland if he... Uh, no, actually, point, there can be circumstances in life where you made a commitment and you got in a car wreck and you can't get there. You're in the hospital because only God can be sure he's going to keep his commitments. There can be circumstances where you made a commitment and say, okay, I know, actually one year, like 20 years ago, I, I agreed to speak here in one breakout session at IBCD conference. And then I got invited to spend two weeks ministering in Korea. So I went to George Sipioni, who was the director, and said, would you release me from that commitment because of this opportunity? And he agreed. That was actually 22 years ago. Um, so you can do that. But if he said, look, I really need you, I keep my commitment, I know that's God's will. 
that's what happens when God gets hold of you. you everything changes. Um, you, you use your words to build others up. And the, the Bible teaches, I mean, we, we give praise to God. The Psalms, are, we, we use our tongues. That's what James talks about. With the same tongue, the same mouth, we tear down men in the image of God, but then we can sing praises to God. And so we were singing tonight and we read the word of God together and we encourage each other in the word of God. We, we can teach the word of God. The lips of the wise spread knowledge. And we're at a counseling conference, uh, Proverbs 27, oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friends. So when we disciple one another, we, we use the Bible to encourage each other, uh, biblical peacemaking, to, to speak the words of life to people. The fruit of the righteous is a tree, the, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. We can use our words to tell the lost about Christ. And now we're in God's image. Sometimes rebuke, a loving rebuke, not venting, but a rebuke goes deeper into the one who has understanding than a hundred blows to a fool. He rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. Faithful of the wounds of a friend, but deceitful of the kisses of the enemy. Sometimes we should speak and we don't. There are times you see a, a, someone you love and they're moving in a sinful direction. They're less regular in the church, devotion to the Lord. You see them moving towards sin. But you say, I don't like conflict. I don't want to bug them. When from the Word of God, you may have to speak, even if from your perspective it threatens the relationship. And then affirmation. We had Sam Crabtree here a few years ago. I would encourage you, if you've never listened to his audios on the IBCD website, he wrote a book called Practicing Affirmation. And it's a book that really changed my life quite a bit. Because we biblical counselors typically get a little nervous about praising people, you know? Well, everybody's totally depraved. We don't want to puff up their pride and we don't want to build up self-esteem because that's not a biblical concept. But it is biblical to affirm the work of God on other people. Can you think of any examples in the Bible of people affirming other people correctly? Yes, you can. One, two. Huh? Paul to Timothy. Yeah. Paul to Timothy, commending him for his faithfulness. Paul in Philippians says that he had nobody else like Timothy. Everybody else was pursuing their own interests. But Timothy was one who was genuinely concerned for their welfare. Most of Paul's epistles begin, even the Corinthians, not, not the model church, but he begins by commending what can be commended. The, when Jesus writes to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, he commends things. What about Proverbs 31? Her husband rises up in the church. Many women have done nobly, but you excel them all. So we can build each other. Do you know how powerful words of affirmation are? And that's where I think Crabtree was so effective to... And I like the way he put it. He says, you're, you're giving praise to God for his work in others. If somebody says, I thank God for you because you helped me in this way. Actually, this happened to me. I was at a conference in Dallas a couple months ago. A guy walks up to me and says, you don't remember me. And I think, you're absolutely right. <laughs> I came to you 15 years ago because I was trying to make a decision about marriage. And I only came to you for one session at IBCD. And you walked me through that decision. I'm thinking, okay, what's coming next? <laughs> And he says, here's a picture of my family. You got me over my sinful fears of marriage. Now I'm married and I'm a pastor and I have this lovely family. But I want to thank you for showing me from the Bible I was free to marry and that my fears were unfounded. That like made the whole trip worthwhile. It was delightful. And we can do that for one another and it's entirely biblical and appropriate. And Again, the tongue that once tore people down now builds people up. And that's so important in families, right? You have kids? Do they ever do things wrong? Are they aware of your views on their shortcomings? <laughs> the things in their life you think are inadequate and you would like to see changed? Is that possible your children might be a little bit aware of that? Do you still feel the need to make them aware on a regular basis? <laughs> Most likely so. You can't avoid all of that. But are you thankful to God, even if your kid's not saved, for evidences of diligence, honesty, industry, grace, kindness, love for you? How are you doing at that? 
we're all naturally critics. Actually, Crabtree's book, Practicing Affirmation, is about this thick. He says he's going to write a second one, Practicing Criticism. He said it'd need to be a multi-volume work to get it right. But constant criticism without affirmation destroys relationship. And it's appropriate to, to build up and then do so giving glory to God. Um, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you want to hear that someday? Other things, open your mouth for the dumb, for the rights of the unfortunate. So speaking for the afflicted and the needy. Um, and then even in your manner of your speech, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stirs up anger. There's, there's a lot in the Proverbs, not just about what words do you say, but how do you say them? Well, I'm glad you're home. I'm so glad you're home. You can use the same words with entirely different meaning in terms of manner. Timely words. A, a, a man has joy in an apt answer. How delightful is a timely word. That's like apples of gold and settings of silver is the word spoken in the right circumstances. Um, and then because I like to sleep in, I love this verse. He who blesses his friend with a loud voice early in the morning, it will be reckoned a curse to him. And actually, when you move from the West Coast to the East Coast, and you have friends who think you're still on the West Coast, and they call you at 10 at night, which is 1 in the morning, I could text back this verse. <laughs> he who blesses his friend with a loud voice early in the morning it will be reckoned a curse to him. Uh, sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Humble, gracious, redemptive. And then speaking to others in a way that would draw them out. To, you want to listen to them. The plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. And then God rewards, honors excellent speech. The tongue of the righteous is as choice silver. Um, with the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach will be satisfied. He'll be satisfied with the product of his lips. Uh, God brings blessing. If you use your lips wisely, you will be, Proverbs, the perspective of Proverbs will say it's going to bless your marriage, it's going to bless you with your kids, it's going to bless you in your friendships, it's going to bless you in your business relationships, and if you violate these things, it's going to cause havoc in all those areas. So this is a crucial issue in life. Uh, in the New Testament, no book emphasizes this more than the book of James. And you're familiar with chapter 3. Three, but in chapter 1 we've already read be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger and then verse 26 of chapter 1 if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless that's kind of getting back to where we began, isn't it? your tongue is going to reveal where your heart really is and which side you're really playing on if you have come over to the Lord's side you'll start speaking the language of the kingdom and if you're still speaking the language of the kingdom of the devil, it may be what he talks about in verse 18, being brought forth by the word of truth to be a first fruit. That may not have happened yet. Um, so it is a crucial issue. And again, what needs to happen is a change of heart. What you said, out of, out of the heart, the mouth speaks that... And this is where many people misunderstand like the book of Proverbs. You, you could go through 95% of I've said so far tonight, a Mormon, a humanist, a Roman Catholic, a Jehovah's Witness, and a Muslim would say, that's all really good stuff. Those are all, don't lie, say kind things, affirm, you know, the, the Chamber of Commerce, the Toastmaster, everybody's had a great speech, except for that religion part I kept throwing in. But... Um, Everybody can say, well, that's really good stuff. But if the heart is not changed, it's like you've got this dead stump of a tree and you're, you're stapling on plastic fruit of trying to say the platitudes that resemble the Proverbs. But if your heart is not transformed, it's not real and it can't last. And if you try in the flesh to control your mouth, you will fail. You cannot be made self-righteous by the labors of your tongue. You need something to happen to you amazing and miraculous. Um, James says in chapter 3, for every, in verse 7, for every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles, creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. 
this is where James has been talking about how with the tongue you, you, you can destroy people and, and it's set on fire by the very world of iniquity. It's been set on fire by hell and uh, you know, with our tongue we bless God but then we curse men who have been made in the image of God. These things ought not to be this way, he says. He says you've got a fountain. How can the same fountain spit, send out both bitter and fresh water? And there, there's a word there, and this is sometimes when you're doing a Bible study, you use your concordance, and you see it one place, and then it comes up in another place. And there's a, that's, I'm sure I'm not the first person to see it, but it, it just, in one sense, stunned me, is when he's, he's lamenting. And one thing funny about James is he never actually tells you the answer. He just goes on to the next topic without, this is horrible. The tongue is untamable. Now we'll talk about the next thing. What do we do, James? But he left a little clue with this word untamable because in Mark chapter 5, you have an untamable man. When Jesus came to the country of the Gerasenes, and when he got out of the boat, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had been dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore with a chain because he had been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, day and night, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gnashing himself with stones. And the language used of this man in the Gospels is the same language used of our tongues. You have an untamable man. That's a picture of us apart from the Gospel. But who can tame that man? Well, then you continue seeing Jesus from a distance. He bowed before him. He shouted at him, what business do we have to do with you? Jesus, the son of the most high God, I implore you by God, do not torment me. Because Jesus said to him, come out of the man, you evil spirit, unclean spirit. And you ask his name and it's legion. You know the story, this herd of swine. But then the herdsmen went. And what happened is the swine came out, I mean, the, the, the demons come out, 2,000 swine die. The herdsmen ran away and reported in the city, in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. <laughs> and there's a whole lot in this story that would preach, but from the standpoint of our talk tonight, if you've been honest with yourself and you go through all the bad things we do with the tongue, we've all sinned in many ways today. We probably can remember things not just that have been said to us, but things we've said we so much wish we could take back because what was in our heart was wrong and it came out of our mouth and it hurt others and it hurt ourselves. And I, I appreciate James's lament. Who can tame this tongue? But the answer is in Mark 5. Jesus can tame the tongue. Just like you had this guy breaking iron shackles and nobody could subdue him. But Jesus Christ, when he encountered Jesus Christ, he was subdued, clothed, and in his right mind. You see, what you need is not to staple the plastic fruit on the dead branches of your own self-righteousness to try to learn good speech technique. I'm going to tell the truth. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to say nice things. I'm not going to gossip. Easier said than done. That may just be one more lie you just told yourself. I can do this in my own flesh. But Christ is saying, if you come to me, he says, you make the tree good, the fruit will be good. That's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. He will give you a new nature. He, the, the sap will come into you and you'll be a new tree that produces new fruit. And now you can speak in the image of Christ. No longer are you controlled and no longer you're under the dominion of, of the sinfulness of your own tongue. And, and now, as they said of Jesus, no man ever spoke the way this man speaks. Never once in his 30 plus years of life did he speak with his tongue. He never lied. He never flattered. When people provoked him, he gave a gentle answer. Uh, the, Peter says when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. Not only did he avoid sin, he spoke perfectly. Every word he spoke, his words are life. We are fed by his word. And he speaks to us. He invites us to come to him. And as we, we come to him, he makes us new. He forgives us through his blood, through his cross, of all of our sins of the tongue in the past, the present, and the future. And he doesn't leave us in the slavery we were once like that demoniac out of control, but he gives us a new nature by which now we are a new creation. And now 
we've changed sides. No longer do we have to speak as our father, the devil speaks with death and lies. Now we can speak with grace and truth because of what Christ has done for us. The gospel, which saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, is a gospel that transforms us into new creatures being made into the image of Christ. And now, as James laments our tongues, there is hope. I think he hinted at it. I think it's earlier in the book as well, but it's clear in Mark 5. The hope is, as you come to Christ, you can be transformed. The tongue can be tamed. And we who once spoke lies and slander can bring glory to God. Does anybody have a question? I've got five minutes, which is unusual. (laughs) Yes. Um, Can you give some ideas of how to counsel people who are stuck in a home with siblings or spouses who are very abusive in their speech and they can't get away from it? So like siblings are going at it constantly or somebody who's constantly attacking. Attacking them? You don't have a counseling in front of you who's sitting in their speech, but you're counseling someone who has to deal with dealing with abusive speech. Right. Well, I quoted 1 Peter 2. What did Jesus do? 1 Peter 2.23, when reviled, he did not revile in return, but entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. So the situation you described is someone who has no place to go. I think there can be circumstances where if you're 19 years old and your parents and your siblings are fighting that way, you get out. Um, It's more complicated if you're married and you're yoked together how you deal with that and how far it goes. Um, If they're doing it to you, it's still very hurtful. Actually, uh, a couple years ago, we produced this anger card that some of you have seen. And I've been working with my friends at RTS. There's actually a a card I've created, five things to tell myself. And the whole card isn't even done yet. We got stacked, though, at the RTS table where when other people are rejecting and hurting me is really, what do I tell myself? And it's got five things to say, because I need to replace their slanderous lies with the truth of the Word of God. And so each one has got five things from the Bible to tell myself with verses for each. One, in God's sight, I am precious, completely accepted, adopted, and loved. Two, what God thinks really matters, not what man thinks. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings us near, the one who trusts in God will be exalted. Got verses there. God can help me to flourish even when people fail me. Jeremiah 17, 5 to 8. So even though these people are just, you know, like a sandstorm, I can put my roots by the water. Jesus went through more for me than he's asking me to endure for him. And then if someone is mistreating me, it is because they are walking in the flesh. So one thing I've tried, we're trying to come up with some little tools of, okay, we spend an hour counseling you or read a book, but what's something you can tell yourself when you're being hammered. So I don't know if that addresses the question all that well, but that's kind of one aspect of that would be, you know, if they're fussing at each other, you walk away. If they're fussing at you, you try to walk away. If you can't get away, then you need to tell yourself the truth from the word of God that would counteract their lies. I think it helps to recognize they're doing what we just talked about. They're speaking on behalf of the evil one who destroys and lies and it's not going to probably help to say, well, you're speaking like the evil one. <laughs> but, you can say, you can, but you can say to your heart, I recognize what's happening. And God has something different to say to me. And what can be very hurtful, sometimes what they're saying is they know enough truth about me to make it hurt. But again, that's what my, my security is not in the fact that these people are impressed by me or that I'm perfect in their eyes, but that... I'm a new creature in Christ, that I've been accepted by God, not because of my righteousness, because of the righteousness of Christ. I've been adopted by God, and I've been adopted by God. Then what these people are saying doesn't really matter that much. Okay, let me close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy to us in Christ. We thank you that you spoke the world into existence and you made us In your image, we confess that we have often sinned with our tongues because our hearts are sinful. Change our hearts. Thank you for the hope we have in the gospel for forgiveness and transformation. We were once like that demoniac. We thank you that now 
in Christ we can be in our right minds and that the tongue can be tamed. Help us to build each other up with our words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2017, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org. Thank you.